Sounds like. You're listening to KRUI 89.7, Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests, and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. In this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are currently playing at or coming soon to film scene. Our lineup includes the classic Singing in the Rain, which plays at film scene this Saturday and Sunday, November 22nd and 23rd at noon. Next, we'll be discussing Citizen Four, Laura Portress's documentary of Edward Snowden and his revelations about NSA surveillance. Citizen Four opened at Film Scene last Friday and will continue to play throughout this weekend and into the following week. Finally, we'll be discussing The Overnighters, a documentary that offers a portrait of job seekers in the oil boom town of Williston, North Dakota. Opening this Friday, The Overnighters plays at Film Scene for one week only, from November 21st to the 27th. Michael Davis, a Bijou member and the chair of our Bijou Film Forum Committee, will be joining us during our third segment to discuss the film. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-host. We have Catherine Steinbach, the programming director of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome back, Catherine. Hi, glad to be here. And Changmin Yu, also a member of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Changmin. Hello, everyone. And I'm Leah Vonderheide, Bijou's executive director. I should also mention that all three of us are film studies PhD students in the Department of Cinematic Arts at the University of Iowa. Let's start with our first film. Singing in the Rain features the ever-energetic and effervescent Gene Kelly and is quite possibly the greatest musical of all time. Changmin, I know that this is a beloved film for you, so why don't you start us off? Sure. Um, to be honest, Singing in the Rain is my favorite work from Gene Kelly. Reviewing this film a few days ago, I feel its charm, self-reflexivity, and glamour are still working for me. I want to point this out because sometimes Gene Kelly's films can be too self-enclosed and absorbed in their respective world, cutting off any connection to reality and the audience in front of the screen. This is how I feel about An American in Paris. In the early 1950s, there seemed to be a trend of looking backward to the silent era of Hollywood filmmaking. To name a few, Sunset Boulevard, directed by Billy Wilder, should be one of the most famous. Another good example would be Charles Chaplin's own Limelight. These two films really made, uh, really trade on a nostalgic invocation of people's memories of the silent era. More importantly, the glory and at- atmospheric splendor are transformed into something really melodramatic and necrophiliac as seen in both of these works. Seeing the rain is different. It's vibrant and lively. As an audience, I can't help but join the cheering crowd in front of the theater in the beginning of the film, waiting Don Lockwood to appear. This film, albeit artificial in the most extreme sense, is spontaneous. It sutures the dancing and scene numbers into the narrative sequences with the utmost expertise and smoothness that gives easy transition from one scene to another without disrupting the immersion of the spectators in the story world. It perfectly balances the so-called cinema of attractions with the cinema of narrative integration. The male audiences can lose themselves in the endless exhibitionist display of colorful bodies of women. The female audiences, of course, can fall in love with Gene Kelly on the big screen, for he's the one who prefers ordinary but smart girls that are brave enough to single his errors out. This film is also about the realization of the American dream. In the case of Kathy Selden, we witness a girl who dreams to be a real actress on Broadway, becomes a household name in the end 
by playing herself in "Sing the Rain." The coming of sound not only expels the likes of Lilian Lamont, but also makes Hollywood cinema a serious art that can compete with the real theater. That's why Kathy decides to stay in Hollywood without any grudges. Sound cinema breaks the old rule that made every single silent film same. I was never a big fan、uh, of musicals, but this is definitely one of the first musicals that I would deem as a masterpiece. Leah and Catherine, do you ladies share my excitement toward this film, or I'm being am I being a, a fetish cinephile? Losing myself in the glittering world of Hollywood. <laughs> um, I I love this film. I I guess I I have a little bit of a, a disagreement. Well, not maybe not a disagreement, but、um, a different take on this film's view of silent era cinema. But、um, but I don't know. I I really love all of the reflexivity, and I think it's so funny.、Uh, there, it's it's a masterpiece in its like ability to be. Lots of different things at once. Yeah,、uh, I think the key there is the reflexivity that sets this film up to be really enjoyable、uh, for any viewer because it's acknowledging some of the silliness. It's not just a film about film, but it's a Hollywood film about Hollywood film, and so it's being silly with、uh, the sort of the Hollywood dream factory. And there's that wonderful. Sequence where they're walking through the studio early on, and there's all these different sort of backgrounds where there's the like foot, like the crowd at the football game, or the like the long hallway, or the I don't remember what the first one was, some sort of action sequence, I think.、Um, and so you're like walking past all of these backdrops, and、um, it's just there's something like really fun and. There's something fun about that that makes you embrace some of the later love scenes and love songs because you know that they've already acknowledged the sort of silliness of the dreamlike world of Hollywood. Yes, that's definitely true.、Uh, I also want to talk about the character of Lena Lamont in the film because I believe that is a reference to Greta Garbo because、uh, Greta Garbo was this famous silent film star, but later in the song era. Um, she loses、uh, her charm because、uh, her her voice was really coarse and hard to hear. So, in one of the first films in which we can listen to her voice,、uh, Greta Garbo has this really、um, I don't know working class coarse laughter. That is very very hard to accept. I'm I'm talking about、uh, Nino Chica, directed by Ernst Lubitsch in 1938. So, how do you feel about Lena Lamont's character in this film? She's great. I mean, she's like a perfect villain because. I don't know. I feel sympathy towards her. She keeps running around saying, "You guys think I'm stupid or something?" I, I was going to try and do the voice, but I chickened out. <laughs>、um, but yeah, so she's running around like, like saying, "You guys think I'm stupid," and they and she is a little stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but she's also dead right that they they think she's stupid, and so they think they can kind of do whatever they want, and they'll just use her while she's a star, and when they don't want to use her anymore.、Uh, They're gonna they're gonna get rid of her, and so she starts seeking vengeance, which of course is conflicting because it's you know she takes it out on our heroine that we're rooting for, but at the same time it's like nice. She's not pure villain. She's kind of sassy and ridiculous and funny, and I don't know. I like her. Yeah, I, I find that she's she represents such like a difficult lesson that this film is trying to teach us, right? That That、um, silent cinema, early cinema, vaudeville—all of these things—they—they they were filled with lots of working class people, right? Like, like stage acting wasn't an elite profession、mm-hmm. <laughs> um, before cinema, you know, it was invented, and even during the early cinema era, like, and so then this transition to sound. Really makes it very like the signs of class are all the more visible, 
and it's it's very uncomfortable like a lot of this film and especially even like the um the backstory of don and and his friend i can't remember his name um uh, and they're like obvious working class background but they're constantly lying to um to like gloss it over and make it seem like they have like a high class background and that's why the world should adore them mm. versus having a working class um kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps narrative which i don't know it's it's such a strange contradictory um message and and pretty dark when it comes to uh, a critique of hollywood so um i think that she just represents all of this strange contradictory stuff that you find disturbing and dark uh at the same time as kind of funny and absurd yeah and you know this film actually has something in common with the recent film uh, by Blake Bell. That's her name, right? Uh, in a world which is talking about voice work in Hollywood films and the valuing of certain voices over other voices. And I think both of these films just take the assumption that if you have a good voice, like somehow that makes you a better person. But if you're, you know, like, why is that? Why is that aesthetic quality and valued over how somebody looks? Like, I don't know, like there's some sort of odd value judgments that people are placing on voice. Like voice, a good voice makes you more intelligent. A good voice makes you more educated. A good voice makes you higher class. Um I don't know what, I mean, what is the, what is the message we're supposed to understand from these types of films? I know. I feel like if you want to survive in sound cinema, you have to be photogenic and phonogenic. Like I feel, I feel that's the lesson. And also because I feel like one of the premises of this film is that sound makes cinema a serious art, right? Because uh, Don Lockwood originally has this doubt toward he, himself, like he's acting, he's a ham, whatever. Mm-hmm. But after a certain point, we don't see that anymore. Like, okay, we have some cinema right now. Everything is fine. I'm a serious actor again. So it's like, do you feel some cinema really um, become a serious art? I mean... Well, but again, so the reason why he ends up being respected as an actor in the cinema is because he does draw from his vaudeville past and sort of bring that into the sound cinema world. And that is valued. But Lena's working class voice is not valued. Like, Why is that? Why is her voice a problem? But his saying like, no, I'm going to bring in these sort of like more like popular um, artistic styles into the cinema. And some of that's going to make me a good actor, but her voice can't find its place. Is that true? Yeah. No, oh, okay. I, think you're, I think you're totally right. And it, it's, it's a, I don't know. It's a strange thing. I was also thinking about how, um, for the main part of the film, they're working on a melodrama, right? Mm-hmm. So it, somehow the melodrama is a place where her voice can't possibly exist, right? Like he can somehow go between these genres um, but somehow she can't, like she's, it, it would be too absurd to have this, like, I can't stand him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, strange. I mean, I don't even know what that's supposed to be, I guess, but <laughs> those nasally A's. Yeah. yeah, I, mean, yeah I, I, I can, I cannot find any excuses for her voice. Like I'm trying to think of a way that we can use her voice in a film, but that seems to me impossible to do, right? Well, because it represents a character that you don't want to see in a film. Although, to be fair, the film we're talking about is actually seeing in, in the rain, and she's in that film. <laughs> so, I mean, we are watching a film where she exists and where she has a significant role and is a very like fun character and crucial to the way that this story unfolds. Yeah, but it's working within this particular genre in and of itself right so but i don't know it's a really it's a very reflexive genre commentary too that's going on here that like what is acceptable to be in comedy um which is maybe more of a a working class kind of uh traditional genre versus a melodrama which is supposed to be you know more uh 
I don't know, uh, profound, serious, serious, serious. sober discourse, (laughs) sober discourse. And I don't know, um, or like appealing to only, um, our heartstrings, not our like kind of absurdity in, in any way. It's just a strange genre commentary going on. I know. I feel like you have to have a deep, profound, late night voice to have a successful career in some cinema. Right? <laughs> Are you making a pitch right now? Yeah. <laughs> Just need that late night voice. <laughs> I do think it's funny that we've uh, spent so much time being a little critical of Singing in the Rain, which I do actually think is an unbelievably enjoyable film. It's a blast to watch. It's absolutely lovely. So we'll end on, on that note. Um, <laughs> Singing in the Rain plays at Film Scene this Saturday. And Sunday, November 26th, 22nd and 23rd at noon. For more information, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss Citizen Four. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film. Citizen Four is Laura Portress's documentary of Edward Snowden and his revelations about NSA surveillance. Catherine, I'm hoping you can give us some background and context before we begin our discussion. Yes, glad to. So, in August of this year, Wired Magazine's cover story labeled Edward Snowden the most wanted man in the world. And this riveting film by filmmaker, journalist, and activist Laura Poitras only reinforces that sentiment. For much of Citizen Four, we observe the unfolding of Snowden's disclosures while sitting with him in his Hong Kong hotel room. It's a small space, and we are highly aware of the physicality of Snowden and his very few guests, which include Poitras, Glenn Greenwald, who would break much of the story via UK's The Guardian, and various other attorneys or journalists. The close, though posh, quarters are incredibly affecting as we sit in tense knowledge of the jeopardy that lies outside the door. As the stories begin to flow out into the mediascape, we know that this man will only be able to freely exist in the liminal spaces outside of U.S. political sway. He must leave his life before behind, including his family and friends. It's astounding to think of the level of trust that exists between documentary filmmaker and subject here. Snowden explains clearly and intelligently the knowledge he has gained regarding the NSA and big data's insidious reach in regards to both domestic and international privacy rights. But in a greater sense, we get two different worlds colliding in this film. The physical, incredibly material world of bodies, fingers typing and scribbling on scraps of paper, and the abstract cloud of networked information. This clash makes the project vitally important to thinking about current and future political freedom. How can we protect our rights or make informed decisions when we don't understand the workings of an abstract system of information? Who will inform us of those workings as well as our vulnerabilities? The film leaves us on a cliffhanger note, as new information is vaguely discussed but not revealed. We are left to seek out what else could be disclosed. What will shock us further? What are the journalists involved in this film and the greater story in general holding back? So I thought we'd start our discussion maybe with uh, this fascinating ending. The scraps of paper with clues of future information bombshells. What did you guys think about this conclusion and the incredible curiosity that we're left with? Is it meant to be kind of a motivational ending spurring us to mine for the truth on our own? Yeah, well, it's okay. So we're going to dive right into the end scene because (laughs) (laughs) there is this thought that they're about to embark on a whole new uh, revelation of what exactly, I guess, the U.S. government is up to, who exactly they've got their tabs, you know, who they're keeping tabs on. Um, By that point in the film, though, for me, I mean, just in terms of it being a film, it felt a little... Uh, extraneous to end the film that way because so much has been revealed 
through the initial leaks that I, by that point in the film, I wasn't surprised. I mean, you could have told me anything about what the government was doing and I would have been like, that sounds fine. Like, or not fine, but that sounds like something that's happening and okay. But they seemed like they wanted to leave a cliffhanger and so they were maybe forcing something. But then maybe, you know, then, then again, maybe this is really there really is something huge that hasn't quite been teased out and hasn't quite come to light. And I'm being cynical at this point. I don't know. What do you think, Changmin? I don't know. I I feel like the re, the ending reminds me of um, Inception. Actually, like <laughs> yeah, standing top, right? <laughs> I okay. Uh, are we back to the reality or are we still in the dreams? Like, so, like, the director wants to play this kind of hide-and-seek game with her audiences. Like, okay, I'm going to show you something. And, like, I actually am scared about, like, okay, uh, what kind of information that we're going to receive? Because I feel like, oh, what if, like, the government people tries to decipher the those important information in the film. I mean, we don't see the clear images, but like, what if the government has some kind of advanced technology that can do that? So I feel like, okay, I'm scared a little bit about that. Yeah, especially because we've spent this whole film with Snowden essentially saying like the government can listen in through your landline. The government can visually... I don't understand the part where he's typing underneath the blanket, but there's, there's something about the fact that like visual something, something detection and suddenly they're going to pretend or not pretend. I mean, I think something's going on, but suddenly they're filming people writing on scraps of paper and saying like, Oh, there's a new big, I, I don't know. Well, but maybe this is also just what needs to happen for a film like this because you know, uh, obviously, I, I jumped in on the on the last scene, but this film is is a very there's no like real surprises in the film. Like you're sitting um, and you you know what's coming, you know the disclosures by this point. This is like a you know kind of a a new angle on a fairly familiar story now. So maybe it it needed this cliffhanger to to keep us kind of riveted and attached to this story and thinking about it after it's over rather than just being like, oh, that was an interesting view of of the physicality of Edward Snowden <laughs> during this period of time. I don't know. Maybe. But then again, it just seems so, um, I don't know, ungraspable, the, the nature of how kind of big all of this is and how, how much it could explode in the, in the future. Um, it seemed like that was, um, the kind of dreadful, uh, foreboding ending that we have that, that this is all, this is going to shock all of us and, uh, and it it hasn't happened yet or has it, you know, I don't know. (laughs) Go ahead. Okay. I, I want to disagree with the reverting point because I feel like the the beginning of the of the film does give you this kind of feeling that you you are going to see a thriller, right? Yeah. But after a while, it kind of dissolves. Like you don't see or feel that anymore. So it's like, oh, the director herself knows uh, this incident too well. So she decided to provide us a different kind of view, like a very, very intimate view. So it's not, I, I don't feel like there's, uh, there's tension working in the narrative of this film. So, I mean, I mean, it is still very good, but it's like it wouldn't, uh, despite the end, uh, it wouldn't make me worry or uh, wonder what's going to happen next. I think that this film would have been better served to have ended in on a more, uh, on a less cliffhanger note and on a more realistic note of when these revelations came out, they were shocking. We did talk about them, but the most shocking thing in my mind about the Snowden revelations was that largely American people did not take to the streets and did not actually care. I mean, there was sort of like a collective shoulder shrug in the wake of this. And that's kind of what's the like most 
to me, watching the documentary and watching like Snowden willingly give away his life to bring something that is incredibly important to our attention uh, into the future of our country, into the meaning of democracy, and for us to have, you know, a year or so later to have really, there hasn't been the uproar that there should have been, really. So I felt like it was like her desperate attempt at the end to be like, no, 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 this is still really pertinent. This is still really desperate. Like, this is still, this still matters. Is that super cynical? Yeah. No, I I think that you're right. And I, well, I think that you're right that there is the kind of strange shrug in response to this. I think that the most vehement response has been uh, regarding Snowden, of course, like, whether or not he's going to be vilified or, or you know, somehow placed on a pedestal um, as a figure of, um, of you know, kind of anarcho-liberal uh, utopic internet, you know, um, it's just a, it's a strange thing to see it routed that way. That that it's it, it is about him, and that's what maybe makes the film buy into that. Um, greater discourse of, of that it is about Snowden. It is, it is about this one particular body that we're worried about uh, labeling or we're worried about um, where it is and how it is and, and how he's getting access to more information or what, you know, like, um, so maybe it, it, that is a little bit of the kind of vicious cycle that the, that the um, film is buying into. Um, but I don't know, I guess I, I still think that, that the film is riveting because certainly we get a, a point in the film where we don't, ha- we no longer have access to Snowden, right? Like he goes underground about two thirds of the way in the film. And then we're left with these like DOS interface text <laughs> voiceovers. And I don't know. I mean, certainly uh, my politics are, are guiding me here, but like, I was profoundly missing his presence. Like I was worried about where he was. I, I know that he's still, you know, obviously at, the, at this moment he's fine, you know? Alive. Uh, yeah, he's alive <laughs> and he's fine. But, um, but you know, you worry about his physicality in this film because you're, you're saturated with it for so long and then all of a sudden it's gone and, and you have someone else's voice guiding you. So I don't know. I, and that way I think that there is something that is – um, using the generic kind of spy thriller tropes of like space and escape routes. Like we're constantly worried about space and escape routes um, at like, you know, places of refuge and places of jeopardy. Um, I don't know. Am, am I wrong about, about this kind of use of space? I mean, I, I think you are right. And I think that's, uh, also the reason why we have so many empty moments in the film. Like we are just watching the people doing their stuff. Like, okay, it was Snowden doing his hair. Yeah. Or, <laughs> like that's sort of like, it's, it's like, uh, I don't know, a, a marked version of Hollywood thrillers. Like, okay, if something or someone is coming after you, it wouldn't be uh, like those Hollywood action movies. It would be like this. Like, it would be mundane, mundane, strange. strange. Like, okay, I'm going to take this path or this exit, or I'm going to take a taxi to, to yeah. the United Nations. It wouldn't be something that, oh, there's going to be a bomb or yeah. like gunfighting or something like that. I feel like... Uh, if you want, I mean, in that sense, it is uh, tapping into the whole Hollywood action thriller formula. Yeah. And I think that that was my next question was like that there's some parts of this that seem very comedic, almost spy parody kind of stuff. Like, yeah, these mundane moments where you're sort of like watching him try to figure out how to disguise himself and, you know, and it's, it's absurd, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm being too harsh on it. I just, I loved the scene where he's figure, trying to figure out how to disguise himself and he just like puts in his contacts. He's like, that seems fine. <laughs> Nobody will, will recognize me. It's like, dude, you just at least dye your hair. Like, Come on. Where's the wacky wig? Come on. <laughs> But maybe I'm injecting but, too much. <laughs> but it is also because 
Edward Snowden is such a beautiful guy to look at. So yeah, <laughs> so wait, so, wait <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. All right. That's, it's on the table. I won't take it off the table. No, it's just like because he's he's so handsome, so you can spend a lot of time on him. Yeah. I, I feel like that's the. I've point. never particularly thought he was super handsome before this film, but by the by the middle of the film, I was just like, "Yep, <laughs> I am buying what you're selling, sir." <laughs> Into it. All right, this anyway. This analysis <laughs> took a really unexpected turn for me. So I'm going to wrap it up there. Uh, so again, Citizen Four opened at Film Scene last Friday and will continue to play throughout this weekend and into the following week. For a complete, li- complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. Before we move on to our next and final film, let's check on the weather. It's currently 22 degrees in Iowa City and partly cloudy. Tonight, there's a chance of flurries with a low of 13. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, high of 24. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. During our third segment, we'll be discussing The Overnighters. Joining us today to discuss the film is Michael Davis, a Bijou member and the chair of our Bijou Film Forum Committee. Under Michael's guidance, the Film Forum Committee brought an incredible range of great films to film scene this semester, including Level 5, Rich Hill, Hannah Arendt, Fruitville Station, and Happy Valley. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me. The Overnighters is a documentary by Jesse Moss that chronicles the lives of men who have moved to Williston, North Dakota, in the wake of the shale oil boom made possible by hydraulic fracturing or fracking. With the sudden wellspring of jobs made possible by this oil boom, tens of thousands of men from all over the world have arrived in Williston in the last several years seeking employment. While other documentaries have sought to expose fracking's impact on the environment, such as Josh Fox's Gasland, Moss's approach in The Overnighters is to document fracking's effect on people. Before fracking, Williston's population was around 12,000. Today, that number is closer to 30,000. Although the oil industry has generated countless jobs, often with starting salaries exceeding $100,000, it has not generated infinite or even adequate housing opportunities for these relocated workers. With high demand and almost no supply of housing comes exorbitant rent. In fact, Williston's rental market is currently the most expensive in the U.S., beating out New York, Los Angeles, and the Bay Area. With no place to live, men began seeking shelter at a local church headed by Pastor Jay Ranka. Embracing the ethos of the Good Samaritan, Pastor Jay was soon offering dozens of men a place to sleep on the floor of the church, despite protestations from the church congregation as well as local residents who have come to fear Williston's new homeless population. The focus of Moss's film ricochets between the homeless men of Williston and Pastor Jay himself. Yet in the end, it is truly the pastor's story that takes precedent over all the others. Although it is, to some extent, for reasons I can't fully explain without spoiling the film. This film is certainly affecting and borderline sensational at times. Michael, you first saw this film at the True False Film Festival Festival in Columbia, Missouri last spring. I'm wondering, what was your initial reaction to the film? And since you got to see it with an audience, um, what was sort of the audience's reaction? I did see it at True False, and it was a good thing, too, because I going into the screening, I had no idea about this, this growth in Williston and this oil boom. So it's always nice to watch a film like that where you can actually learn about something going on that's topical. And I was immediately hooked um, right from the beginning. Um, Pastor Jay is just a really interesting character um, and just a great find by director Jesse Moss. I I mean, he he really lucked out in a lot of ways. And um, as far as the audience's reaction, it was unbelievable. I mean, there's a standing ovation after the the film. um, And when he got up there, it was just everybody was clapping. It was um, a very interesting experience seeing that that wealth of, of of reaction to a film um was pastor jay with he was him? not okay. um 
he was, I believe, at Sundance um, when the the film showed there, and that um, I've heard that was an even more um, crazy experience. Having seen this this emotional journey, this um, the Pastor Jay went on um, with the overnighters, and and just that interesting character seeing him live and in person. I, I'm guessing that was pretty crazy. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that Pastor Jay is this like he's a captivating person. I mean, he's very, you can't take your eyes off of him. You can't stop listening to him. And I mean, he is after all a pastor. I mean, I think preachers have this quality of being captivating um, when they're doing their job well. I'm wondering for you guys, did you, did you identify with him in this film? Did you identify with any of the other characters, any of the overnighters themselves? Did you identify with the neighbors who are fearing for their children's safety? Keegan, who's the young guy who's uh he, he's trying to better himself for his girlfriend and his baby son. I don't know. What were your guys' uh, thoughts about these characters in the film? Well, I think, yeah, I, I really admired uh, Pastor Jay. I thought that it, it's a, it's an incredibly difficult position that he's in. I mean, he's, and yet he's so willing to believe in people's goodness, which is super challenging, <laughs> um, especially with all of the, you know, kind of tension and negativity that's going on in that, in the community, trying to uh, adjust to this growth and adjust to this kind of new way of life. You know, um, it, you can totally understand the the tension and, and perhaps the fear, um, especially when, you know, a lot of these people coming to town are they've at least they feel and they express that they're on their last chance, right? Like this is my last chance. This is my go for gold type situation. And it's um, the desperation is so palpable and, and therefore Pastor Jay's willingness to, um, to kind of match their desperation with uh, generosity is, is super profound. And, um, and his own family and his own kind of personal like time and life really kind of take a backseat to that. So it's a very affecting um, and um, sympathetic portrait of, of this man who's just trying to trying to believe in, in all of his um, his ethical stances, you know, and try to act them out, you know, (laughs) and which is, I think that more than most people can say, right. Uh, I feel like the film is very, very careful in the sense that it not only portrays the pastor in positive lights, but it also uh, gives you a feeling that something is wrong. Like we see a little bit of crew here and there um, indicating that he might be not as good as you think him uh, think him is so it's like uh, there's a weird tension that is building up in the atmosphere of this film, and I feel like that that is the uh, one of the most important reasons um, that makes this film riveting. Yeah, no, I think that you're right because it, it, there is a sense that something's coming, like something um, that. Like that almost that this lifestyle is toxic for the pastor because his faith in humanity is is yeah. almost like unbelievable. Yeah, you I think know? one of the reasons it connected with me so well and I, I sympathize most with most with his family because obviously the conversations you see he have with his wife, they kind of made this pact okay kinda of long ago, being the wife of a pastor, that there are certain things that he has to do as part of this community that are kind of larger in scale than possibly a marriage, but also for the children as well. I mean, you could see they're putting a lot of trust in their father that, that he knows what he's doing. And you can see in moments where even he kind of questions whether this is the right thing to do. And I, I was kind of captivated. I would have liked to see even more of the dynamic with the children because they, they were a big part of, of certain portions of the movie. Um, talking with um, various overnighters about how they feel about the program and whether they like it. And they always supported their father, 
but you could see that that connection, that trust was kind of strained at times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so one of the things I'm interested in is that this film has been described many times as a modern day Grapes of Wrath, which is Steinbeck's fictional chronicle of an Oklahoma family that travels to California in search of work as tenant farmers. However, I think even evidenced in our own conversation, this comparison seems a little misleading since this film does turn so much on the story of Pastor Jay himself. And I wonder if that's almost a disservice to the other men that are maybe should be at the center of this story. Uh, These men that have, this is their last chance. They, you know, they are um, the unemployed affected by the great recession, as it's called. Um, They, they don't have anywhere else to turn. This is, they've left their family behind in some other state and they're here to make money. And yet it's almost impossible not to come away from this and only talk about Pastor Jay. I think that's a pretty uh, well taken point because from my reading, um, Jesse Moss, he intended for the overnighters to be the focal point of of this documentary. And um, after spending six months with the overnighters staying at the church, he quickly, and we see this as well, this great character that Jesse Moss in interviews expressed, this kind of universal, this universal thought that we should treat everyone with respect and we should be one big community um, and I think Pastor Jay's own demons, in a way, in his conversations with the overnighters, they had a connection. You can tell that Pastor Jay got things out of these these men that otherwise might not have been like received just by a director. That's true. That you're you're saying that Pastor Jay is sort of facilitating. Yeah, he's our he's, relationship. He's, he's kind of our mirror into, to to these mm-hmm. these these men. I feel like this film uh, is connected to the films we've talked about, such as Happy Valley or even, I know, in a very uh, distant way, White Bird in the Blazer, because uh, they are sort of about this kind of small town mentality, because uh, when you live in a small community, it is hard for you to accept changes like especially when the change is so drastic and unacceptable. So I feel like um, in, in a way, the film is trying to depict a utopian vision of hospitality, but it is too radical for people to accept. I mean, so we have pastor as our mediator into this world, but like we don't know how much he can actually do, although he's he's trying to do whatever he can. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. That small town menta- mentality, um, and you know, I was thinking about this in comparison to some of the other great documentaries that we've talked about on Banter this fall: um, Level Five, Rich Hill. The Internet's own boy, Happy Valley, today Citizen Four. I'm wondering um, how you feel this, just as a documentary, this film kind of compares to these other documentaries that we've talked about in terms of its approach to its subject, um, the way the story unfolds. Gosh. Um. (laughs) That is a big question. Yeah, because these films are like very diverse. I mean, there are certain... Similarities, like you know, Rich Hill is another small town yeah. film about yeah. sort of what what is it like to be in a very small community and have need. I think one way you can look at a few of them is that the the directors take a close look at one person or various groups of people and kind of extrapolate like big issue problems like of poverty, of unemployment, and take a, a really close look at this person and how this this examination mirrors what's happening in our current um, um, lives as well. It's like um, Rich Hill, for instance, following these, these, these kids and how that's just a microcosm of what's going on in the world at, at, at this time. Um, I don't know what, what else do you guys think about that, that topic. Well, I definitely thought about Rich Hill a lot when, yeah. when watching this film. Um, and I, I think it's because there is some sort of difficult to grasp disillusionment 
that is being communicated ultimately by both the films, right? That, um, that we all want to envision uh, a community and we all want to envision um, that these boys are just boys and they will grow up to be men and, and maybe this period of time will be forgotten, right? Um, but <laughs> I think that the documentaries really paint a different picture, right? That, that this that these ideals aren't aren't going to happen for for a lot of people and that the way that we think about um certainly we've talked about boyhood a lot <laughs> this this semester the way that we think about boyhood with with Rich Hill the way that we talk about um being being becoming a success becoming a part of a, a community in um in this film you know uh in the overnighters i think there is a there's a pretty harsh disillusionment with both of those that there are way more complex issues at work here, um, preventing even the best of intentions from from being fulfilled. Well, it's also about um, a certain kind of stance of these documentaries, because in in this particular film, overnight the overnighters, we can see a transition from sincerity uh, sincerity to irony. Like there's definitely. Uh, that kind of sentiment layer, because like, for example, in Rich Hill, the director um, wants us to identify with the poor children, like poor people who's living in a miserable condition. And in the beginning of The Overnighters, we definitely feel like, feel that, I feel like, okay, I need to do something to help them. But I mean, as it proceeds, you could see a very, very subtle chemical reaction is going on in the atmosphere of this film. And the sincerity uh, at the beginning of the, of, of the film is gradually disappearing and it becomes a totally different thing that you have to grasp with difficulty. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of the evolution of the of the overnighters itself and what it kind of does to your spirit towards these men who need a place to sleep. Um, it's occurring to me now, uh, Michael, we had the chance to do the Q&A with the director of Rich Hill after that screening. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying that, that it wasn't his intention initially to, to follow the children of Rich Hill, but it was a it turned out to, that they were better subjects for the audience because children can mediate poverty more directly and audience members yeah. are willing to just accept that. And here it seems like maybe that's the same thing that happened with Pastor Jay because an audience has this reaction of of blaming adults for their situations. And yet, at least in the first half of the film, I mean, I do think that the film starts to really shift in its tone, but in the first half of the film, I, you are so on Pastor Jay's side and you are just able to be, I think, more compassionate through his eyes. I don't know. Am I making yeah, I would, clear points? Yeah. Um, it's obviously in the beginning, um, you're rooting for this this experiment to, to work out. And I think, as you mentioned, Kai, by the end, there is kind of um, a tragedy in that it's, it's looking like it won't. And I think the conclusion I, I drew from the film is that Compassion for these these men and also women, because um, there are women who, who go up there working for work as well, so I don't want to forget them, um, is a positive emotion. And that Jay's goal was well-intentioned. But I also think that when you try to create a community and express a morality that is not always the majority opinion, you, you'll get a pushback. And that pushback has consequences. And you saw that in the alienation that Jay feels by the end of the film, he's he's left just questioning his entire life's work. It almost seems as like this experiment, as I mentioned, has has not worked as as well as he thought it would. And Leah, I think that's a great point that um, that we need a mediator to kind of uh, ameliorate the judgment that might happen because I think already in the overnighters with you know by the maybe two-thirds of the way through the film you're kind of left with this question like wait like so i've been introduced to all of these these people looking for a second chance and and which which of them deserves it you know like so 
I think it would otherwise, if we didn't have Pastor Jay, it would be this quagmire of like trying to figure out (laughs) as a viewer, like who you want to root for. And that's a really strange place to be uh, and and kind of a sad and terrible one as a viewer. Um, And and then, um, and there still is a little bit of that, but I think that that, uh, everyone can kind of get behind this view that this utopian view that Jay has. And so it helps us to frame these people that he's encountering, even if um, their circumstances tend to be ones that maybe we wouldn't um, want to identify with just by themselves. I guess his, this whole experiment, the overnighters program kind of makes people question their own morality and question whether they would help these men and women like pastor Jay is and I think when that happens, I think most people don't, in certain circumstances, don't like to have um, that kind of shoved in that, their face, that reality of like, this person is living by an ideal that I can't live up to. And then I guess for most of the people in that community of Wilston, when that happens, they get, ang- they get angry. And then you saw mm-hmm. that at the city council meetings and people's like, we're fed up. We, we don't want this anymore. We're good people, but it reached a breaking point. And it's, 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 I wonder what breaking point, I mean, I mean, at what point is it too far? I mean, if you're thinking like we have to treat each other with respect and be one big community, is there a breaking point? Is there, is there too much? Um, I think Pastor Jay would say that there isn't. And as the community in Wilson disagrees with him. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I mean, he he goes the distance in a lot of ways. I mean, he is opening up his own home. He is bringing people into his family. He's he's going to such great lengths that surely most people can't picture truly doing themselves. And so, yeah, I mean, so it's like you're, yeah, you are sort of disillusioned in that way as the film progresses, just like realizing the limits of your own graciousness and your own (laughs) ability to uh care for the least among us well and how how much work it takes to to expand this kind of idea of community you know it just takes so much work he's working his butt off you know like he really like pastor jay is just wow um but and and it's so strange because you think that the town could somehow take on this work and dissipate that effort, but they seem to think that it's an, a viable option to just say, no, thank you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that they're going to somehow shut this process down, which, which is another strange part of this film where like, what, why do we even think that that's an option? Like, how are we going to stop this, this from happening? And, and how is that not even more work to shut down the the influx of, of new workers and the influx of people looking for um, for a second chance, you know, like that's not. It's it, an it's yeah. an odd idea that capitalism is driving these people to this community, and as a result of capitalism, and so many people are fans of capitalism. I am well, I am as well in certain <laughs> cases, that they're just they're <laughs> they're just rejecting this idea that. We want more people to come to our community, but we kind of want to pick who comes to our community. Yeah. Um, We're all for people having jobs, but it's the right people having jobs. And I guess, I guess community to take their kind of viewpoint is it's not so much that they, they don't like people coming to the community and, and injecting money into it, but they don't like the kind of people that are coming. And I think that's, that's an important point to, to recognize um, in this kind of um, experiment of uh, utopia. Yeah. Well, I feel like people living in that little town uh, are also assuming there's this idea of an everlasting community that is that is not going to change, that is going, going to last forever. Because like originally, uh, Williston had like 12,000 people and they now have about 30,000 people. So, I mean, the immigrants are more than the people originally living in this town. So, um, how, I mean, what 
who are the right of rightful inhabitants of this town, or who can live here? I mean, we are assuming the property owners are the only people who can have a word uh, in this kind of difficult Im- uh, immigration situation, right? So I feel that's the origin of of this dilemma we are facing here. Yeah, and so this is maybe then a question of the filmmaker's uh, approach to this. One, he doesn't interview anyone at these oil companies who are making plenty of money and clearly not building housing for enough people. He doesn't interview anyone in local government who might also have the opportunity to think strategically about how to change the structure of their town and instead spend all of their energy just passing ordinances to like prevent people from parking places. I mean, it's like (laughs) these crazy, I mean, this happens in Iowa city as well. Like, Oh, we'll just like tell people they can't lie down outside. And like somehow that's going to make people not homeless is crazy. I mean, (laughs) that's not what governing is. So why didn't he, do you think, interview these other people that might have shed light on some of the other aspects of what's happening? That is a good point. I mean, I think just maybe from a, I can, I guess, speak from a practical practical standpoint that maybe the story would just gotten too big. Um, and it is, there are a lot of characters, although Pastor Jay is the focal point, there are these kind of like side characters of the overnighters that they, we get little glimpses of their lives and how they're, how they're coping with a scenario where I don't think they expected when they moved from Florida or Texas or California in hopes of striking it rich because of the oil boom. Um, it, it, is a, it is a pretty one-sided take from the perspective of this little cohort of the overnighters, Pastor Jay, and all the the kind of church community, um, I yeah, the outside perspective could have been helpful in certain cases. Well, and it seems like it could have been. Fe- well, my first instinct is to say like, oh, the oil companies obviously wouldn't want to be interviewed, um, but they gave access to cameras coming in. That's and- true and filming during a lot of processes that are going on. So why not um, talk about some kind of really practical things that aren't necessarily tied to, you know, their profits or something, but, but just talking about the new people being brought on and what do they think of second chances, blah, blah, blah. Even that kind of, um, you know, kind of more positive language. <laughs> they could have gotten their spin doctors all yeah, over that, right? Yeah, they would have Job creators. All over. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously we're saving the world, creating these jobs with fracking, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, why don't we have a talking head saying that, you know? Um, but so yeah, maybe there's, there is this kind of, uh, empty space waiting to be filled with that, that viewpoint. I don't know. I know. Uh, (laughs) I really don't know because, uh, on the one hand, the film wants to explore this issue of purity, like, uh, okay, the the town people uh, want a certain kind of purity in church. And they also want a certain kind of purity in their community. But on the other hand, the film only provides uh, a very one-sided uh, perspective for, for us to evaluate the situation. So I mean, it's a paradox, or it's 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 something I feel like the director uh, doesn't really touch. But I don't know. Maybe that's that was his uh, intention to just show this one small story of that's supposed to point to these greater themes, essentially, of not only fracking and ideas of community, but issues of compassion and morality and poverty and even drug addiction, which was, uh, I think, an important yeah. uh, component to this film throughout. Okay, guys, we'll end on that note. Once again, The Overnighters opens this Friday and plays at Film Scene for one week only, from November 21st to the 27th. For a complete complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. 
If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and longstanding role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. A quick note to listeners, Bijou Banter will return on Wednesday, December 3rd, after the Thanksgiving break. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Changmin, it's a pleasure as always. Likewise. And Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter after the Thanksgiving break.